0: We are just beginning our study of the book of Philippians. We, of course, had three introductory lessons, and now we're actually going to get into the text. I do want to say that if you don't have a Bible, a Bible that you own and bring to church, now's a good time to get one. It'd be really helpful while we're studying the book of Philippians. Which one to get? There's lots of options as far as translations. I teach from the New American Standard Uh, I think it's the best word-for-word translation, so it's helpful for you when you're listening to me teach to have the same Bible, Um, that could be a real help, but there's also one called the English Standard Version, the ESV, which is uh, very close to the New American Standard, but it's a little more updated and easier in language and in syntax, Um, just flows a little better than the NASB, and then if you you really want something that's just down-to-earth language, I recommend the New Living Translation. Uh, I go to it all the time, I I read it daily, you guys hear me quote it often, it just communicates so well, it's a paraphrase, it's not a word for word translation like the New American Standard, uh, but it's really helpful for understanding passages, I I commend that to you. It'll be a little bit of a challenge as I'm teaching from the NASB and you're reading from the New Living Translation because they read so differently, but they say the same thing and the New Living Translation says it in a way that really connects, especially if you're a new believer, a young believer, that might be the Bible that I recommend to you most. Today's message is called Joy in Gospel Partnerships. We're going to cover the first eight verses. Um, <clears throat> we're going to kind of set an aggressive clip going through the book of Philippians. I had told you that it would take about four years, and that's what I had originally intended. I had five lessons planned from the first two verses. So we we're going to go real slow, but I felt led to speed up the pace. Part of that is pragmatic. Uh, We'll finish the book at the end of January at that time. It seems that that's when my family and I will be going to Israel to seek alternative treatment for Daisy. No idea how long we'll be there, so I wanted to finish up Philippians before we go. And since we've got so many new and young believers uh, in our body here, I felt that a faster clip would be helpful for them to get a grasp on the whole book and help them to grow in their Christianity. So that's what we'll be doing. We're going to read the first eight verses right now. This is Paul and Timothy. Bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your word would have a tremendous effect in our lives today. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would do two things right now. You would please anoint me to communicate your truth in a way that glorifies your name and accomplishes your purposes. Lord, I want to be your tool, your servant. I don't want to get in the way, so reign me in and anoint me for your glory by your grace. And then we also ask that you would open up our hearts to hear the word, open up our minds to understand the word that bring us to a deeper place of loving you with all our hearts and all our minds, Lord, and all of our strength. We ask that Holy Spirit, you would cause these syllables and sounds coming from my mouth to be useful for your glory because it comes from your living word. We believe it to be inerrant, infallible, wonderful, and active in our lives. So Holy Spirit, do a work in us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well. Paul starts the letter here in the traditional way that letters were started back then by stating his name first. Nowadays, when we write letters, we put our name last, right? Sincerely, Brit, or whoever you are. But back then, they put the name first. And you'll notice that it says, Paul and Timothy. But the content of the letter is really Paul's. Ultimately, we know it's the Lord's, right? This is the word of God, but that God used a man to pen it, and that man was Paul. He's just kind of throwing Timothy a bone here, but it's clear that the content is actually Paul's because he uses the first person singular all throughout the letter. You can see that in the first several verses. He says, I and me, not us and we. But Timothy was with him at the time of the writing, visiting him during his imprisonment, and they had a profound, loving, fruitful, gospel-oriented, on-mission relationship. And this is one of the main themes in the letter, that relationships, Christian relationships, are to be fruitful for the gospel a partnership for the gospel. And when they are, they bring tremendous joy to the Christian life. This is one of the strong themes in the letter, and we'll see it unfold as we move through the chapters. He addresses this letter to the saints who are at Philippi, meaning the church there, the Christians that are there. We already talked about Philippi, its location, the occasion for the birth of the church, and one of the introductory lessons. But I just want to clarify what Paul means when he says, to the saints, in Philippi Saints simply means holy ones or set apart ones. That, that might be a better way for us to understand it. That's really what holy means is set apart. It doesn't mean that they were people who were exalted in some special way in the truth, rather in the church, excuse me. Rather, Saints refers to every true Christian who has been made holy by God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it doesn't pertain to some holiness that is earned in and of ourselves by some either inherent uh, merit or by some activity or behavior or some abstinence from some other behavior. That's not the sort of holiness we're talking about here. We're talking about position that is given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Realize that the New Testament never has a special class of people that it calls saints within the church. Okay, some of the church throughout history has invented those and said about this person, they're a saint, and we have that as a colloquialism, so-and-so is a saint, but the Bible doesn't do that. It's talking about all Christians. As far as humanity, God divides humanity into two classes, saints and sinners. And a saint is merely a saved sinner, okay, and they're not Made a saint by some behavioral change or some positive action. Rather, we are made saints by a change in allegiance through repentance. Okay, we become allegiant to King Jesus by repenting of every other allegiance to ourself, to somebody else, to our pride, to the things that have us in bondage, to materialism, whatever else, to, and then we repent of that and we repent of our sins, we become allegiant to Jesus Christ and there comes a positional change. No longer a position to sinners before God, but saints before God, holy, set apart for him and his purposes. We need to realize as we look on at the rest of the world that Our designation as holy ones doesn't mean we're better. It means that we're different, okay? It's not a designation of we're better than the rest of the world. We are different from the rest of the world. Now, having said that, we must understand that one of the goals of our Christianity is to bring practical life in line with positional truth. Okay, we are in Christ through the repentance of our sins and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're exalted with Christ. We're seated in the heavenlies. We belong to him. We're called holy and for his purposes. And that's all true because of the work of Jesus. What we want to do now is bring the practical experience in line with that. Okay, we've been made holy. Now we want to act that way. We've been changed. Now we want to live changed lives. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Now we want to act that way. So we have, as we spoke about last week, those set of imperatives, what Christ has done for us and who we are in him, excuse me, indicatives, that then lead to imperatives, how we ought to act and live in light of what we have received in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we are truly in Christ then we're going to find ourselves wanting to walk with Christ and we're going to find ourselves beginning to be more like Christ. Amen? Amen. And what is Christ like? Well, notice that it says, the, uh, he's writing to the saints, in Christ Jesus. Notice the word placement there. Not Jesus Christ as we normally say, but Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here by placing Christ, which is the title, Messiah, anointed one, before Jesus, which is the name, Jesus of Nazareth, by putting the title before the name, it's reflective of the idea that Jesus is the one who is currently exalted and glorified, but was previously humbled and crucified, He is the Christ, the anointed one, the exalted one, the king, the Messiah, the deliverer. He's exalted and glorified. He was previously Jesus of Nazareth who was beaten, spit upon, mocked, scourged, crucified in our place. And that's going to be unfolded for us, that picture of the humility of Christ in chapter 2. And so then the Christian life is to follow this example, though positionally we are in Christ, seated in the heavenlies, exalted with him, practically we are to be humble and self-effacing like him. Okay, we understand that. We're seated in the heavenlies with him, We're to live out a practical life that is humble like him. And that becomes another key theme in the book of Philippians. The humility that is patterned after Jesus brings peace and joy to the life of the believer. Now the letter is not only written to the saints there, the general church. It's also addressed to the leaders in the church. It says they're overseers and deacons. And overseers are the pastors and the elders that were ordained in every church according to Acts 14.23 who are entrusted with leading, loving, and overseeing the flock of God. Deacons are those who are called to assist the elder pastors with practical tasks, with the material things so that they could concentrate the elders on the word of God and prayer. And we see that in Acts chapter 6. Paul himself is an apostle. And as apostle and as the founder of the church in Philippi, he had a degree of authority in the church and over the church. And oftentimes when he wrote a letter, and this is true for 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, he would introduce himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he would invoke his apostleship at the beginning of the letter. Here it's interesting, and only here, he takes a different approach. He says, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, bondservant is merely a less potent way of saying slave. Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, the one who is exalted and glorified, but was previously humbled and crucified. I'm a slave of that one. Now, there are practical reasons why he's doing that. He's not addressing major controversies in this letter as he is in many of the other epistles. There's not a lot of drama. There's not a lot of challenges to his apostleship. So he doesn't need to invoke his apostleship. He also seems to have a deeper relationship with the Philippians and many other churches. But the salient point is this. Paul, and I want you to get this, Paul identified himself as a slave. In a culture where that was very meaningful, okay, some say that up to 50% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. There's a very clear hierarchy in that culture, a very clear distinction between the haves and the have-nots, between the free and the not free. And Paul identifies himself as being a slave of Jesus Christ in a culture where people knew what that meant. His perception of himself was, I'm not my own, rather I am owned. And Paul's life was surrendered and submitted. His will was surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ. His wants were surrendered and submitted. His circumstances, the good, bad, and the ugly, surrendered and submitted to Jesus. His dreams His dreams were surrendered and submitted to Jesus. His passions surrendered and submitted. His joy surrendered and submitted. Paul saw himself as the Lord's property and not his own. And Corinthians says, don't you know that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so Paul saw himself theologically and very truthfully now as being at the Lord's disposal. And that meant that there had to come an end to Paul, right? Like Romans chapter 6, right? Where we're crucified with Christ. Like Galatians, where it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There came an end to Paul, like the call to discipleship. You want to follow after me? You got to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me daily. There came an end to Paul, a surrendering and a submitting of all that he was to Christ and all that he is, and all that Christ wants to accomplish. And I wonder how many of us, if we were to write a letter, could say that in truth as well. Whether we put it at the beginning or the end, could we truly sign a slave of Christ Jesus? Are we surrendered in that way? Are we submitted in that way? In the good things and the bad things. In our hopes and our dreams, our heartaches and our suffering. This enslavement to Christ is a major theme throughout the New Testament, especially in the Pauline writings. And it has everything to do with the way that we see Jesus in relationship to ourselves. And we've talked about this before. Do you see Jesus as being supreme in your life? Or is he merely a supplement to your life? You see, a lot of American culture would want to force us to make Jesus a supplement. A lot of American Christian culture would do that. But biblical thinking, right? Biblical culture, if you will, would want to force us to make Christ supreme because either Christ is everything or he's nothing. Either we're slaves to Christ or in some very real way, we're denying Christ because we're to confess him Lord of our lives. He's to be the master of all. As I'm saying this, I'm burdened as I look at some of your faces. I need to tell you that God is not a killjoy, that he doesn't want to make your life miserable, that if you surrender and submit and become a slave of Jesus Christ, you don't lose anything, but you gain everything. A man who tries to hold on to what he cannot keep is a fool, but a man who gives up what he cannot keep to gain everything that he can never gain on his own is wise, and that's what's offered us in Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, is Christ supreme, or is he merely a supplement to you? Is Christ preeminent above everything else? Or is he only prominent in your life? That would be very respectable in America, and very respectable in the American church, to give Jesus a place of prominence. But that would be an abomination in biblical thinking. He's called to be preeminent, not merely prominent. And so we find that, as Paul would testify, enslavement to Christ is actually the ultimate freedom. Anything less than that keeps us bound to lesser things, which yields through and in us a lesser life. Enslavement to Christ is the greatest life and the ultimate freedom. In any area of our life where we're not enslaved, and it's not always one giant thing for us. There's often these small areas where we refuse to be submitted. When we stay submitted or allegiant to lesser things, it yields in us and through us a lesser life. We're being less than who Christ created and called us to be. And you see, Paul refused to do that. For him, to live was Christ. And this will slide us into the main offering of the text this morning. And that's this, that as Christians, we can partake in gospel advancing partnerships that bring great joy to our Christian experience. Look again in verse 3. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy and my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul had this attitude of thankfulness and joy toward these people. And we can imagine that they had the same sort of feeling toward him. We remember from Acts 16 how the church started. I mean, think when this church opened up this letter and there's Paul saying, oh man, when when I think about you guys, I just have this joy and I'm thankful for you and it makes me pray. And you can imagine Lydia Right, who was the rich Asian woman that was saved on the river that day, the first convert to the church in Philippi, just being, oh yeah, Paul, want to think about you, I have this joy because you expressed the gospel to me first and now I'm participating in that and you can think about that young girl who was demonized. And used and and manipulated in the marketplace saying, oh yeah, Paul, when I think about you, I get so stoked because you delivered me from demons in the name of Jesus. And now I'm a participant in that work as it goes forward. We think about the Roman jailer who was working for the man, so to speak, and who was about to kill himself, but then heard the gospel from Paul as he was in prison and was converted and his whole family. And how thankful and full of joy he would be that his children knew the Lord and his wife knew the Lord and he had eternal life. And there's this love thing going on here and it's real. Paul says, when I think about you guys, I'm just full of joy and it makes me pray and I pray joyful prayers. He even says in verse seven, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. The New Living Translation puts it this way. You've got a very special place in my heart. He's saying to these guys, gosh, I I love you in a unique way. And you know what? He doesn't say that to every other church in the New Testament. It's not one of those things that you just say, you know, oh, I just love you in a special way. You say that to everyone. No, he's not BSing here. This is for real. He feels this way about these people. Verse eight, he even says to prove it, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. New Living Translation says it this way, I love you and I long for you all with the tender compassion of Christ. It's just this real loving thing that's going on. And and here's perhaps why that was real culturally profound at the time. They were not quite as touchy-feely as our culture is today. That, that culture, remember, the Church of Philippi is in modern-day Greece, right? Macedonia. And a primary cultural influence during the day were the Greek Stoic philosophers. And they were kind of opposed to the affections and the passions and, and too much feeling, right? They were, they were a little more sober in their approach to life. Their influence is evidenced by the fact today that if you call someone a Stoic, it means that they have a lack of show of feelings in any sort of situation. They're, they're stoic. They're just kind of stone-faced and, and straight and even killed no matter what happens. So these guys were a primary cultural influence during the day. And part of the relational approach that was predominant in this culture was to be cautious about whole-life commitments and passions. Don't throw it all in. You got to stay reserved. Be cool. Don't be vulnerable and don't get hurt. That was kind of part of the prevailing relational culture. A lot of people in our culture are still like that today. It's not necessarily a philosophical thing as much as it is a been hurt from relationship thing. Right, and our culture would often lend itself to that because the culture here is completely egocentric. And so if you've been hurt, right, the culture would say, well, well look out for yourself. Take care of yourself first. You know, you've you got to get yourself better. And so what we do then is, is we put up some walls, you know, and we're, we're scared to invest. We're scared to surrender. We're scared to love in a certain way and commit in a certain way and say things like this. There's so many people in our culture that can't say, I love you. One of the things that's prevalent in our culture is instead of saying, I love you, people just say, love you. They make it innocuous. They're afraid of the risk of, I love you. And so they remove the I and they remove the you and love ya. And when I get an email or a letter and at the end it says, love ya, I'm like, uh. Either you actually don't and you're just saying that or you've been really hurt and you're afraid to say that. But Paul, in the strongest way, in several verses, is saying, I love you guys. My heart and thoughts are bound up with you guys. Chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them my joy and my crown. See, Paul refused to conform to the culture, which wanted to be cold and reserved and not, keyword, Invested. And Paul preferred to be like Jesus passionate, radical, invested in people. Now it's profound enough, culturally speaking, that Paul loved them this way. But the reason he felt so strongly about them is even more weighty. You see, the reason that he felt this way is given to us in verse 5. It was because of their participation in the gospel from the first time that they had heard it until, as it says in verse 6, the time of the Lord. He felt this way about them because they were partnered with him in the gospel, because of their participation in the gospel. Now, part of the reason he wrote the letter was to thank them for a financial gift that they had sent to him earlier on in his imprisonment to support him. That becomes clear in chapter 4. But it's bigger than that one act. Okay, He's not just gushing on them for sending one check. It says from the first day, from when they first believed until the Lord comes back, they, they have been and they will be invested and partnered in this thing called the gospel. And the Greek word there for participation as it's translated in the New American Standard is the familiar word for all of us who've been Christians for some time, koinonia, right? It's usually translated fellowship or sharing or communion or community. Now, We've done a weird thing with that word, fellowship, koinonia. Here's, here's what we've done with it within Christianity. If two Christians are together and they drink coffee, we call that fellowship, koinonia. If two Christians are together and they watch the World Series, well, we're fellowshipping together tonight to watch the game. We've just kind of made real light of that. We just figure, well, whenever we're together as Christians, it's fellowship. And so if you just go by Starbucks by yourself on the right way to work, that's not fellowship. But if after church, you stop off at the coffee cart here and have some of our Pete's coffee, that's fellowship. It's not just because Pete's is better than Starbucks, it is. (laughs) But it's because you did it at church and there were other Christians in the room. And so it's fellowship. And so we've kind of watered down the idea and we just call anytime Christians get together and do anything, being fellowship. Okay, but the idea is a little more powerful than that. It's a broad concept, but it's this. It's close association involving mutual interests and sharing, okay? There's something mutual between us and we share in it and we share in the effects of it. And it's heartfelt, it's passionate, it's invested. Okay, AW. Uh, That would be Tozer. D.A. Carson defines it this way, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Okay, so he says, you guys participated with me, shared with me, fellowshipped with me in the gospel. It means that there was on their part, as there was on his part, the self-sacrificing commitment to this thing that bound them together and binds us together as Christians. And this word fellowship in the first century as it was used in culture had financial overtones. It was often used when money was in play in some way. For example, in Romans fifteen twenty six, Paul writes to the Roman church, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution. There's that word, a koinonia, a sharing, a participation, a financial contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So the word in a certain way here conveys a business partnership in the sense that those involved are, again, keyword, invested. They're in. It's as if we bought a boat together, and we bought the equipment together, and we started fishing together, and we shared the profits. And when the boat broke, we shared that. And when we had a big catch, we shared that. And in the lean times, when we took a loss, we shared that. Okay, there's a sense of being mutually invested. He's saying to them, I feel so radically in love with you guys because we've got this mutual investment, the gospel. We're both invested with sharing intimately in the work of the gospel. From the time of their conversion until now, he says in verse five, they rolled up their sleeves and they got involved in the advancement of the gospel. And Paul sees that their involvement has been so real and profound that he's confident they're going to be on mission until the Lord comes again. Okay, they're not going to be one of those startup Christians. They're not going to be one of those flash in the pans. They're not going to show up and shuffle a few chairs and then slide away a few months later. He says, man, I've seen your commitment to the cause of Christ in the world. You're living life on mission. I'm sure you're going to do this until Jesus comes again. That's what he says in verse 6 when he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, which means his coming again. And it wasn't easy for the Philippians to live life on mission. They faced a lot of the same challenges that we do. One of the Important ones for us to recognize is that they lived, as we mentioned before, in a pluralistic society. As we live in a pluralistic society where there's lots of competing truth claims and no one is given too much weight. Okay, but they're all seen as equally valid, uh, a function of our perspective. You're from that area, you got those gods, that's cool. I'm from this area, I've got these gods. We could kind of commingle gods and exchange a little bit, but nobody get too uppity about your God. Okay, we live in the same sort of society, and what pluralism does is pluralism has an aversion to the claims of supremacy. okay. An aversion to the claims of supremacy, and it pushes religion to the periphery. We already talked about this. Here's why that makes mission hard. They lived in a culture where nobody wanted to hear about the supremacy of some Jewish Messiah named Jesus. That was countercultural, that wasn't popular, that came with some real consequences to claim that. We're living in the same sort of culture. They're okay with Jesus, but don't tell me about the supremacy of Jesus. Don't tell me that that's the only way. How can you, arrogant Christian, say that your way is the only way? And yet that's exactly what we've been commissioned to say in culture. Not in a way that combats culture per se. Rather in a way that explains and exposes who Christ is and why he is supreme. The problem with that is that a pluralistic society always gives itself, lends itself to, moves toward secularism, which again is not the abolishment of religion, but it's the marginalization of religion. Go ahead, be religious, be a Jesus freak. I'm cool with that. Just don't do it at work, right? You guys that are teachers, hey, you can be about Jesus. I don't care what you do at Reality on Sunday. Don't bring it into the classroom. Right uh, on the political stuff, the propositions that are for us. Hey, that's fine. You signed, but 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 don't bring your religion into voting. What I'm going to do in California? People don't care if you're religious or you love Jesus. They just want it on the periphery of public life. So it wasn't easy for them to participate in the gospel because the gospel is the good news about the king who has come, who is the king over every other king, who is the Lord over every other Lord, who is the only unique son of God and the only savior the world will ever know and the only name by which men can be saved. It claims and calls for and causes by the spirit of God absolute allegiance. And that's what they were committed to. And in a pluralistic culture, as theirs was and ours is, proclamation, merely saying things about Jesus, is never enough. Demonstration is always required. We need to live like Jesus. And the more anti the culture is, the harder that is. The more rejected we are, the harder it is to love. But that's exactly what Christ did. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So in our sort of culture, in your settings, at your workplace, in your family, in our schools, proclamation is never enough. It's required that we have demonstration. We show what Jesus is like and vice versa, okay? We can't just show what Jesus is like because there's lots of people doing good deeds. We also need to explain that Christ is supreme. The two go hand in hand. One doesn't necessarily precede the other, but both are necessary. And the Philippian church was 100% committed to both and it caused the apostle Paul to love them. And the burden of these opening verses is that in our relationships with other believers, we ought to be in joyful gospel partnerships. Joyful gospel partnerships. In my own life, Gosh, I'm getting so excited. I'm just tearing up my throat. It's too early for service. (laughs) Let's call this thing off, man. In my life, these relationships have been the best relationships. Some of you have lived longer than me, some of you. And, um, you know, you have a chance to develop a lot of relationships. And I've developed relationships that kind of evolved around surfing I used to have relationships that revolved around drugs. Uh, I've had relationships that revolve around music. I've had relationships that revolve around dirt biking. All sorts of different things. But as I've been reflecting this week on this passage, I I, I realized without question that the most joyful, the most joyful relationships in my life are those ones that revolve around the gospel, that bring the greatest joy to me and others that I'm in partnership with, and so I look at my life to to be partnered with other people in the advancement of the gospel in multiple levels of my life. Like my wife and I support about four orphans through Compassion International, right? So so there we are, just kind of giving to an organization that's out there doing it on the front line, and it brings us tremendous joy. And, and there's this love. You know, we help with orphans down in Mexico. and We help with orphans uh, in Thailand. And so there's this one level where you're contributing. Someone else is out there doing it and you're contributing. This is part of what the Philippians did to Paul. Like Paul's like, bam, doing it fifth gear and they're contributing. There's this other level where it's kind of like organized. You know, I do it with people in the church. I, I, I develop relationships with church planners and leaders and pastors and and the work of the gospel is what our relationship is based on. So it's kind of like the support level, and then this kind of organized, active level, and then there's the recreational level. One of the things I love to do in my spare time is surf. And so there's this level that I find other Christians, and we go surfing, and that's not fellowship. Okay, two Christians surfing together is not, dude, we're fellow- we fellowship all day, bro, just fellowshipping all day at RingCon, that's not it. But we sometimes pray before we surf, especially if it's crowded, Lord, help us be like Jesus. And he almost never answers that prayer for me. (laughs) But I pray it all the time. There's certain people in the surfing community that that I've targeted to just love and to just lavish love on for the cause of the gospel. And so what that does for me then is it causes my life and different relationships on different levels to be saturated with gospel intentionality, right? Whether I'm supporting something over here or I'm involved in something organized and intentional right here or if it's just in my fun time. I, I try to, I'm not great at it. I try to saturate my life with gospel intentionality. I found that that brings the greatest joy to my life. There, there's other times where I get together with people and they might even be the same people. And when it's not kind of based on the gospel and getting this message about Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated, we just get stupid really quick. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about? We just talk about dumb things. And, and then we do dumb things, and then we talk about more dumb things, and then we talk about dumb people, and now we're gossiping, and it just quickly goes in all these other directions. And what I found is that that saps joy from the relationship. Even the same set of people. It's like when I go to bed, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as stoked. I don't, I don't feel as alive as when it was about the gospel that seems to bring the greatest joy, and that's what's going on with Paul here, and everything else being lesser becomes a bummer if we're centered on it, It becomes a disappointment, and so we ought to have this Christ-centeredness in all that we do, realizing that gospel participation is not merely a command of scripture, it's an invitation of Jesus, He invited us into his work. He really invited us into his heart to participate in what he's most passionate about, saving sinners, redeeming the lost, restoring the broken, renewing the destroyed. And what I want to see happen in the church is that this modern idea that the only legitimate Christian activity is done by those in professional ministry or through one's support of them, I want us to see that that's just done away with. That, that's just a lie, a modern invention of the church that there's some guy that stands up there and some other guys and, and they get paid and, and they're supposed to have gospel intentionality and gospel-centered relationships and they go and do it. And that's just the biggest lie in the world. You were meant for so much more. Listen, brokenness exists in every place. It exists in your places, in your workplaces, in your spaces, in your family space. Brokenness exists everywhere that you are, and it's a brokenness that can only be addressed by and fixed by the gospel through both the proclamation of who Christ is and the demonstration of who Christ is. And so, we, having been entrusted with the gospel, are to go and speak the truth wherever there are lies, we're to demonstrate kindness wherever there's cruelty. We're to create God-reflecting beauty wherever it's lacking. And your job, or wherever you spend the most of your time, your parenting, your motherhood, that's your calling. That's where you've been sent. You are sent to that place to develop and cultivate gospel partnerships, investment for the glory of God. Our job is not merely to show up and do the required tasks and run the reports and file the papers. Man, if that's all you're doing with your life, there's more. But you don't have to get on a boat and go to the other side of the world. You don't have to quit what you're doing. You don't have to make some radical change other than an allegiance change. To Jesus Christ, invite him into your space. You'll find he's already there. He's already working. He's already moving. All that's been missing is our intentionality and our willingness to be invested, to be partnered. So find a partner, someone in your life on different levels, okay, church level, professional level, recreation level that you can partner with and just start praying. You know, on the recreational level, level, there's, a pastor who's here on staff in large part because another surfer and I used to pray for him years ago when we were just young here in this town that he would get saved. Now he's saved and he's a pastor and he's impacting the community and God's doing awesome things through his life because we had this thing and we said, let's make this thing more than just surfing. Let's make it gospel intentionality. Let's, Let's pray for people when we do this. And I'm just saying that There's great possibilities when we do that. And we are called to find things that are broken and affect them in a positive way for the gospel to be agents of renewal. I want to finish with this Franciscan benediction. Listen to this. This is great. It says, May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand and comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. Amen. Lord, make us such people. Make us participants in grace and in the gospel this morning, Lord. Lord, thank you for this great example that that this tremendous joy comes from being mutually invested in something so much bigger than ourselves. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would challenge our lesser investments, our lesser allegiances. And the Holy Spirit, you would so expose Christ in this place that it would seem silly to us to be committed to anything else in that way. Do that work, Lord. I feel like my words this morning are just lame. I need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to breathe life into us, to bring your word to life and to make it active in our hearts, to be transformative for your glory. You need any help this morning, prayer team will be up here. Communion is here to celebrate Christ. And as always, let's get on our faces before the Lord.